A reading from the Gospel of Matthew, chapter 28, beginning at the 16th verse. Now the eleven disciples went to Galilee, to the mountain to which Jesus had directed them. And when they saw him, they worshipped him, but some doubted. And Jesus came and said to them, All authority in heaven and on earth has been given to me. Go therefore and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit, teaching them to observe all that I have commanded you. And behold, I am with you always to the end of the age. The Gospel of the Lord. Let's pray together, friends. Almighty Father, as we come to your word, we are very deeply aware of our need for you. Our need rises above our heads. And we are very small in the face of it. But it is not small to you. Your grace is magnificent, and your truth is real, and your word, through your word you speak to us, and I pray now that you will speak to us, and that you will be our teacher, and that we will hear you, and that by your spirit you would do the work in our hearts that needs to be done, and so we ask you to work in us and in our souls and in our lives surgically, go deep into who we are and bring us to Jesus Christ again. In Jesus' name, amen. Well, friends, um, uh, as Michaela said, today is Trinity Sunday. and uh, the gospel reading, the, uh, that second shorter reading that we just read uh, is the gospel reading for today. We're going to be looking at that um, uh, in just a few minutes, uh, a little bit. Um, friends, the uh, crushing weight of the catastrophe of racism is palpable. And African-Americans have lived under that crushing weight for 400 years. And the weight of that catastrophe is palpable. And it brings up the question, what do we do in the face of catastrophe, of long catastrophe? And the answer, of course, is um, we do many things. We do so many things and we must do many and so many things. We lament and we grieve. We learn and we listen. Uh, We speak and we protest and we change our behaviors. There's so many things. Uh, Today I want to do and practice something that really, I guess, only Christians can do. Because when Christians are right in the middle of catastrophe, uh, part of our 
part of our discipline is that from the vantage point of our disaster, from that vantage point, we turn and we look at the face of Jesus Christ. Uh, the way we like to say it here at Emmanuel is we look at the beauty of Jesus Christ. And it's not an escapist thing. It's not as if we're trying to deny the reality of the catastrophe or of the disaster. Um, it's not an escapist thing. I, like I said, today's Trinity Sunday. And we remember many things on Trinity Sunday, but one thing we remember on Trinity Sunday is that Christianity is not first and foremost about us and what we do. Uh, if, that, if it is, if it's mainly about us and what we do, then friends, there is very little hope for us. Rather, Christianity is first and foremost about God and what he does. And therefore, on Trinity Sunday and hopefully on every other Trinity and on every other Sunday, we need to look at him. And all the more in the midst of our catastrophe, we turn our eyes to the Trinity, to God. Because as we look at God, and today especially as we look at Jesus Christ, that is where we will gain clarity and wisdom for navigating our present world. It's not an escapist thing. It's a path to the real world and how to engage it well. Now, our gospel reading, the, the second one, the, the, the shorter reading that we just had, um, it's super famous. Uh, if you grew up in church at all, you'll recognize it. It's called the Great Commission. And it's when Jesus gives his disciples a mission. Verse 18, it says, uh, all authority in heaven and on earth has been given to me. Go, therefore, and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit, and teaching them to observe all that I've commanded you. And behold, I am with you always to the end of the age. Now, that passage says many, many things. But here's, here's one thing to focus on today. That passage teaches us that the greatest authority in the universe is deeply intent on reconciliation. And I want to flesh this out just a little bit today because this is part of the beauty of Jesus Christ. We need to see the beauty of Jesus Christ more clearly, in particular, his robust and visceral and comprehensive commitment to reconciliation, because the more that becomes clear, the more we'll be filled with hope, and also the more we will be filled with motivation. So we're going to try to flesh this out just a little bit. But in order to tell this story, we're going to roll back the tape a whole bunch. We need to go right back to the very beginning of the Bible. We need to think about Adam and Eve. Remember them? Uh, the very beginning of the Bible, the book of Genesis, uh, tells the story of how God created all of humanity in his own image. And uh, when it says that God created humanity in his own image, that means many, 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 many things. But one of the things it means is that God uh, instilled and fills humanity with an intrinsic dignity. When he says that humanity is his own image, part of what happens is there, there is a special connection between God's dignity and the dignity of all humanity. We're gonna talk more about that in just a second. However, also the, the image of God uh, comes with a, a mission. So part of the point of being made in the image of God is that humanity is designed for a purpose. We're designed in a deep way to represent God to this world, 
and to represent the world to God. Um, so, for instance, in, in Genesis, God loves to create. God loves life. God loves flourishing. And, and so when he creates humanity in his own image, part of what that means is that we are to reflect that love for life, that, that love for this world so that we nourish this world and nurture this world so it comes to flourish in deeper and greater ways. But then, if you know the story, you know that then comes disaster and catastrophe. And what happens is humanity rejects God. Um, you, may, you may remember the story, Adam and Eve uh, decided to disobey God. They, there was one tree that God said, don't eat from this tree, this tree's my tree. You can eat from any other tree, don't eat from this tree. But, but Adam and Eve, um, they, they steal from God. They take one of these fruits uh, from the tree that they're not supposed to do so. And, and when we read the story, there's a risk that it may sound trivial. They stole a piece of fruit. What's the big deal? Well, the problem is that if you read the story, it becomes quite clear that stealing the fruit was a symbolic move declaring their independence from God. Or let me say it differently. Uh, I have no idea in the story if Adam and Eve were consciously hating God. They probably were a little bit, but that's probably not the way they were thinking about it. But even if they were not conscious of actively hating God. They were, by their actions, devaluing God. God himself was becoming dispensable. Uh, the dignity and the value of God in Adam and Eve's hearts became a contested idea. And in that moment, the moment the value of God became a contested idea, that ruined everything. One way it did was this. The minute Adam and Eve began devaluing God instantly, they began to devalue each other. And especially Adam. The man devalues the woman as soon as the man devalues God. Now, why is that? What's, why is there a correlation between devaluing God and devaluing humanity? Well, remember what I said earlier? There's a link between God's dignity and human dignity. Our dignity is a kind of echo of, do of God's dignity. And therefore, as soon as my heart says, well, God doesn't really matter, then my heart will become poised to say that human beings don't really matter. And if you go back to Genesis, this story of devaluing God and devaluing humanity, it starts to gain momentum after Adam and Eve. Adam and Eve is more, the, that story is more famous, but there's a lot of other stories that come afterwards. For instance, their children, Cain and Abel. Cain devalues God and he kills his brother Abel. God doesn't matter, neither does Abel. And the two are linked. And then follow the story yet further in the Bible, it all gets more complicated because eventually you get whole societies and whole cultures that over generations and centuries, they enshrine uh, cultural patterns that once again, devalue God and devalue people. And then some of those patterns of devaluing God and devaluing people over time, they become transparent to the people who are actually in the stories. They become transparent and almost invisible to the people, even the people who have the best of intention. And the Bible's camera angle follows 
the nation of ancient Israel. And this theme, this tragic, catastrophic theme just plays out century by century. For instance, if you might go and read the book of Judges, it's bracing. The book of Judges in the Old Testament, um, it's the story of how Israel, despite the fact that they had been rescued from uh, slavery in Egypt, nevertheless, once they gain their freedom, they devalue God and they brutalize each other. In fact, even a few of them who try to value God, many of them get tragically swept along with a culture that had normalized brutality. So for instance, there's a guy called Jephthah who kills his daughter thinking that he's honoring God. It's mayhem and it's carnage and it's hell. And if you've read those stories, they'll sound shockingly familiar. Um, Emmanuel, one of the things that I wanna point out um, is that when the Bible talks about sin, devaluing God, the leading to devaluing other human beings, it's talking about something that is frightfully powerful. And I want us to be very uh, careful about holding to a superficial view of sin. Here's what I mean. Sin is not simply we can, something that we can overcome by good intentions. Yeah, so um, can you identify with a thinking like this? Um, I do not intend to do harm, therefore I am exempt from guilt. You ever thought that way? That is a superficial view of sin. It's dangerous. Or I'm okay so long as I do no direct harm to somebody that I can name, at least not, no harm that I'm aware of. I'm okay. Any idea like that, that is a superficial view of sin. Sin is not simply a matter of behavior, though it includes it. Sin is not simply a matter of individual choices, though it includes it and we are culpable for it. Rather, sin reaches down into the very depths of the human soul and then also reaches out to the widest structures of our society. And you can see that in Old Testament Israel. Israel, despite wonderful moments, they were never able to fully overcome the sin in their hearts and the sin in their structures. And I point some of this out to say we need right now to feel the weight of sin's magnitude. And I hope that some of what's going on right now is that we're beginning to feel that weight. Friends, the crushing reality is that the value of African-American lives has been a contested idea for 400 years. And I cannot conceive of the magnitude of that catastrophe. But right now, if we can taste just a tiny bit of it, then we might also get a little glimpse of the problem and the depths and the evil of our own sin and why it is that sin, Emmanuel, sin infuriates God. I, I need to remind us of that clearly. God hates sin. 
God hates the devaluing of his dignity. God hates the devaluing of human dignity. God hates it. He hates racism. And he will hold every one of us accountable and he will hold our societies accountable. And friends, if that does not frighten us, then we're not listening. And it gets extra scary if you're a person like me because I, Jim, can look at my own heart and I can reassure myself with some of the tools of a superficial view of sin. You know, I can say I'm not clearly cognitively hostile towards somebody, therefore I must be okay. I can't be guilty, I must not be a racist. Phew, I'm done. But the problem with that very act, that's called self-justification, by the way. The problem with that very act of self-justification is that it can blind me to the hard issues that still need to be dealt with. And I can end up using that argument to elevate my sense of my own prideful value. And in so doing, devalue God. And the result will be I will be more poised to devalue other human beings. And I will be a danger. And on top of all of that, the Bible tells me that I will one day stand before God and God will not be fooled by any of the arguments that fooled me. And therefore ancient Israel and modern America and Jim Saladin, we are trapped by sin and we cannot escape it. And so what do we do? Well, remember, Christianity is not mainly about us and what we do. If it is, there's very little hope. But Christianity is mainly about God and what God does. And there, there is great hope. And in our reading, that little short reading, Jesus tells us that he holds all the authority in heaven and on earth. And it ends up that it takes all the authority in heaven and on earth to defeat sin and to reconcile people to God and to each other. And the key moment was on the cross. Because before the cross, the eternal son of God, completely equal with God the Father and the Holy Spirit, the son of God became human in the person of Jesus Christ. And when Rome met Jesus, and when the leaders of ancient Israel met Jesus, they came face to face with everything they devalued about God and everything they devalued about human people. And therefore, of course, they killed him on a cross. That's what we do. Jesus died as a victim of state-sponsored violence. But God, the Holy Trinity, had another purpose going on. Because Jesus Christ willingly and voluntarily offered, him to be, offered himself to become a representative and a substitute, both uh, suffering with every victim of racial injustice, but also standing as a representative and a substitute for the perpetrators of all evil. And as Jesus hung upon the cross, God the Father laid to Jesus' account all the guilt of all the sin, including racism. 
And when Jesus died, God's justice against sin was fully satisfied in him. And therefore, God raised Jesus from the death and he gave him a mission. And the mission is this, send word. Send word throughout the world. Send word that there is amnesty and pardon for sin, that there is reconciliation with God, and that there is reconciliation between tribes and nations and races and languages. And that's what that little reading is all about, because Jesus Christ, risen from the dead, looks at his 11 disciples, and he sends them out with his mission. He sends them out to, with a message, that message, to all the nations and all the races and all the languages, telling them to build communities of reconciliation. And we call those communities of reconciliation, we call them churches. And the sin of the churches rises up above our heads and we cannot even see out beyond our guilt. We act so much and too often like ancient Israel. And yet the faithfulness of Jesus endures. And let me just describe a little bit about how it's supposed to work. You see, um, when a Christian is baptized into the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit, it implies, among many other things, that we are consenting to a bunch of God's work. Uh, we're consenting to the fact that we are, all of us together and each individually, we are sinful disasters. And we need the rescue of Jesus Christ. We need to be rescued from our sin, our individual sin, and also our society's sin. We need to be rescued from our hidden sin, our intentional sin, our unintentional sin. We need to be rescued from all of it. We're consenting to that. But then when we're baptized into the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit, we also are consenting that Jesus really can save us and that he can give us amnesty and pardon. And then we're consenting, consented to be adopted into the family of God so that God is no longer our enemy. God no longer is devalued, but rather God is our Father and we love him. And then we're consenting also to the ongoing work of the Holy Spirit. We're saying, Holy Spirit, will you uh, show me all remaining sin? And will you, don't, I don't want to hold anything back. We're saying to the Holy Spirit, show us our sin, show all of it. And then the Holy Spirit draws us again and again back to Christ so that Jesus Christ at the cross is continually pouring out his mercy upon us. And we're reunited to God as our father again and again and again. And listen to what happens because you can already see it coming. As we receive more of Jesus's mercy for ourselves and for our communities, then our value for him begins to increase. And our thanksgiving to God for his mercy begins to increase. And we love Jesus more and more and it all increases. And as our value for God increases, we will increasingly value his image wherever we find his image. We'll value people all the people, and especially people who are different from us. Because if you've been saved by Jesus, you've been saved by a 2,000-year-old Jewish man. That's different from any of us, and therefore you cannot be a Christian if you only like people who are like you. And yet there's more. Because just like sin infects not only individual hearts, but also cultures and whole societies, so also Jesus wants his grace to transform not only individuals, but whole communities. 
and we call the place where that starts churches. And despite all our many failings and our sin, Jesus desires and pursues that churches will become havens of reconciliation where God is treasured and where people are treasured. And as the mercies of Jesus come clear to us, then especially when we find that one community has been particularly devalued or abused or dehumanized or brutalized, when we find out that that has happened and when that comes clear, all the logic of Jesus's mission will drive the church to gather around that community and say, please, will you forgive us? Please, we are appalled by our sin. We repent and we renounce it and we want to listen to you and love you and serve you. And I trust that that's what Jesus is doing in us now. Oh, please, Jesus. Do that in us now. Can you see something of the beauty of Jesus Christ from the vantage point of our catastrophe? And can you see how Jesus uses all the authority in heaven and on earth to pursue reconciliation, to reconcile us to God and to reconcile us to each other? And I want you to see that, Emmanuel, because I want you to have hope today. Yes, racism is all around us, all around us. And in our hearts, it penetrates to the depths of who we are and every bit of our society. And it's way too big for any of us to deal with it entirely. But it's not too big for Jesus Christ. And all authority in, in heaven and on earth is behind his mission to get reconciliation done. And you can even see it today in little ways in our city. Uh, this past Tuesday, uh, I had the privilege with, with a bunch of others from Emmanuel um, to sit under the leadership of black and brown pastors who organized a, a prayerful protest march in Brooklyn. And it was a privilege they're wise, and they reflect the beauty of Jesus Christ gloriously. And the thing that brought us together, the, the events that brought us together, that we all know are just, are just horrendously grievous, and also at the same time, my heart could rejoice that in that moment, we were acting as one church in Jesus Christ. And I was excited and desirous that we might serve as their allies and that we might be brothers and sisters in the family of the Holy Trinity. And it's a glimpse of hope. And I want you to have hope today, Emmanuel. But along with hope, it should also motivate us. It should motivate us to repent, and it should motivate us to pray, and it should motivate us to obey. Uh, it should motivate us to repent. Emmanuel, there's a huge danger uh, that we will look at the sin around us and think that it's something that's out there someplace, but not in here. Please let's not do that. That's self-justification. If I persuade myself that I'm okay and that, you know, for whatever reason, uh, we mustn't do that because that kind of self-justification can insulate us from reconciliation. And it can lock us up in our own sin. And we'll never even know it's happening. Instead, what we need to do is open our hearts to the Holy Spirit and say, Holy Spirit, work now in me. Convict me. 
I expect to find lots of sin in my heart. I don't even know where it's hiding. That's part of what sin does. It numbs me to my own sin. So Holy Spirit, I need you to look around all through my soul. I expect to find my areas of sin right next to the places where I only value God a little bit. So Holy Spirit, sniff it all out and do whatever it takes to find it and kill it. Do whatever it takes in gym. Do whatever it takes in Emmanuel. Do whatever it takes in the churches of New York City. And don't stop, but just keep on going. Barrel through my resistance. Make me repent. And then we should pray. We should be motivated by all of this to pray. Pray that Emmanuel and other churches of New York City would become havens of reconciliation, that we, be, we would become the opposite of racism, that we would become a place, a full, that we would become a culture that honors each other and that really knows each other so that we can fulfill Christ's mission and reflect his beauty well. And only Jesus can get that done. So pray. And then finally, all of this should motivate us to obey. Because as we repent and as we pray, there's going to be a lot of obeying to do. And I can't tell you right now what all that is going to mean, but I know it's going to include listening a whole lot. And it will include asking forgiveness a whole lot. And it will include uh, ask, uh, seeking healing from our own wounds a whole lot. And it's going to include humbly sharing Jesus's hope with others a whole lot. And it's going to include building new friendships and new alliances. And the list is going to go on and on. But be ready to obey and be ready to obey in risky ways. And as we do that, we can be sure that Jesus will be with us to the end. And the day will come, and you can read about this in Revelation chapter 7, the day will come where Jesus' reconciliation will get it all finally done. And all the nations of the world, representatives from every tribe and every race and every nation will be gathered fully united, praising the Lamb who was slain for us and for our salvation. And we will look at that Lamb seated upon a throne in heaven, and we will know that all the authority in heaven and on earth was marshaled to achieve our reconciliation. And we'll know that it's not a story about us and what we have accomplished, but a story about God and who he is and what he has done in Jesus Christ. And we will never get tired of praising the Lamb who was slain, and we will never tire of loving each other and there will be our joy. And Jesus has promised to be with us till the end of the age. So Emmanuel, look at him and see his beauty and have hope and then find yourself motivated. Amen. Hello, everyone. My name is Jim Saladin. I'm the rector here at Emmanuel Anglican Church. Uh, our church exists to see and describe and reflect the beauty of Jesus Christ for the flourishing of our city. And I hope this podcast encouraged you in that way towards Christ. If you're here in New York City, we'd love to see you. Please join us on Sundays at 11 a.m. Generosity drives everything we do at Emmanuel. And if you'd like to contribute, please visit www.emmanuelanglicannyc.com give.